Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, let me pray for us before we uh, read and talk about this uh, scripture together. Father, we thank you uh, for this moment as we are gathered to worship. We thank you that we come to you having uh, confessed our debts and having heard that we are forgiven people. And we ask now that as we read this word together and think about it and talk about it together, that you would be happy to use it to meet us in exactly the places where we find ourselves this morning. That you would show us the grace of Jesus, that you would remind us how much you love us in him, how much mercy you have given us, and that you would change us by it. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, we have uh, been looking at the prayer that Jesus taught us together, uh, and we have been doing that so that we can foster the habit of prayer in our lives if that habit is not already there, or nurture that habit if it is. Prayer is one of the means of grace. It's one of the places where God has promised to meet with people like us and to share his life with us for our good. And we learn how to pray by being around people who pray and by praying. And so looking at this prayer that Jesus gave the church is a way for us to be around him as he prays it and to listen to him as he prays and to think about what he meant for us to be praying for when we pray. So last week we talked about the fifth thing that Jesus taught us to ask the Father for, forgive us our debts. And this morning... We're going to talk about that surprising uh, and beautiful and very challenging thing that he added to that, a promise to offer to others what we have just asked the Father to do for us. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus taught a, uh, a parable about precisely that thing, so I'm going to read that for us from Matthew 18. I'll read Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed if you'd like, or you can just listen as I read. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word and it's given for our good. So in the early uh, 2000s, our family lived in Rogers Park. We lived in a three flat and uh, the rest of the block was really large apartment buildings. It was by far uh, the densest block that I have ever lived in, uh, lived on, uh, at least as far as people go. And it came with all of the joys of living on a block with lots of people and all the pain of that too. Um, one, one of the joys of that particular place was that we had this little garage that we could park in, which came in handy uh, on, a, on a really crowded block like that. One of the pains was that it always seemed like one of our neighbors was parked in front of that garage, um, blocking us in or keeping us out of our own garage. It was the only place really to pull off in that entire alley, and so that's where people pulled off in that alley, and it drove me nuts. And sometimes it drove me to things that were a lot worse than nuts. One Sunday morning, uh, I, I left to come here to church. And I got into the garage, and sure enough, there was a car parked in front of the door blocking me in. You know, on a, on a Sunday morning, you know? <laughs> so I honked my horn, and I, and I yelled up into space, echoing off of all the buildings. And I honked my horn again, and I yelled up into space again. And this went on for a while, and then finally I, I saw this back door open, and a guy slowly walked down the steps, and it was his car. And when he got to the garage, I said, hey, man, I, I, I've been waiting down here for a while. And he looked at me, and he said, that's too bad. You should have called the cops. And, you know, that set me off a little bit. And I said, well, I didn't want to call the cops. I just wanted you to come and move your car. And then he shrugged at me. And I'm not proud of this. <laughs> We're happy to report it to you. But what I said to him is, you know what I really wanted was for you to be a good neighbor. And I guess that dagger hit its mark. And he said, I'm sorry. And that would have been the right time for me to say, hey, man, it's okay. I totally forgive you. I don't know even why I said that. It's no problem. But I didn't say that. I started right back in at him, talking about thinking about other people and being considerate. And he cut me off mid-sentence. And he said, I told you I'm sorry. What more do you want from me? Well, I didn't really uh, have anything to say to that, so we got in our cars and I drove down here to church thinking the whole way about that question. Why did I say those things? Why did I do that? What did I want from him? I wasn't preaching that morning, but I did end up telling the story uh, before communion. Some of you may remember it. Some of you have reminded me of that story. What more do you want from me? You probably know what I wanted. I wanted him to pay. Not with, uh, not with literal dollars, but I wanted him to pay with something. A few more words of contrition, maybe, the satisfaction that he would give me 
if he told me that I was right. I wanted him to pay because I was unwilling to take the hit. I was unwilling to absorb the cost of being a couple minutes late and being a little bit frustrated. I didn't want to pay that, and so I wanted to make him pay for it. And I know, uh, probably because I've been around the block a few times now, <laughs> that I'm not exactly alone in acting like this. You know, maybe you don't do stuff or say stuff like I did that morning, but we all have our own ways of doing this, and Jesus knows this about me and you. He remembers our frame. <laughs> he knows we do this, and so he graciously taught us, when you pray, say, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Church, Jesus refused, he absolutely refused to have our debts be the last word about us. He refused that. And so if we follow him in faith and walk in the grace of this, this wildly generous forgiveness that he's given to us, then we have to be people who refuse to let others' debts ever have the last word about them either. As far as it is up to us, we are people who forgive. As far as we are able, we are people who forgive. And Jesus wanted to make sure that the prayer we pray and the lives that we live link up together on that, and that is for our great good. And so he told us this wily and beautiful story to help us understand. You know, right before he told this story, Jesus was talking about uh, forgiveness and reconciliation. And it must have been that as he was teaching, something struck Peter. And so Peter comes up to Jesus in verse 21 and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as, as seven times? It's a simple question, you know, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive someone, especially for doing the same dumb thing over and over again? What's the line where I cross from, you know, being a nice guy into just being a dope, a fool? And so Peter shoots out the perfect number, seven. It's got to be seven. And he, and he wonders if Jesus is going to be okay with that. Man, I love Peter. <laughs> he gets as caught as, as flat-footed as you and me do when Jesus says, no, Peter, it's not seven times, it's 77 times. In other words, the math is absolutely not the point. The point is that Jesus wants us to stop counting. And that's uh, unsettling, right? It's an unsettling thing when we think about stopping counting. It's an unsettling thing when we think about extending that kind of grace and forgiveness to other people. But the other side of that coin, church, is the grace and mercy and forgiveness that is uncoupled from math and grace that's uncoupled from counting and calculating and bookkeeping. That's really, really, really good news for people like you and me. Like it's our only hope. <laughs> And that is precisely the first point in the story that Jesus tells Peter. And I don't want us to miss that, church. This is the first point. Jesus tells a story about forgiving others that starts first with reminding Peter and you and me that we have been forgiven. And I'm telling you, church, if we start any place else, any other place than that, then any of the forgiveness that we can muster up, and it won't be a lot, just to be honest with you, but let's say for sake of argument, we can squeeze out a little bit of begrudging forgiveness. If we don't start with grace, it's always going to just be dry, dusty, thin moralism. And it's going to bring exactly zero life. 
to us and to the people around us. So Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And a guy comes in, Jesus says, this guy comes in and he owes his master 10,000 talents. And this is the place where Jesus is telling the story where everyone would have laughed. This is a punchline in this story. 10,000 talents is somewhere between 30 and 100 million days wages for a normal worker. 10,000 talents is more than the total amount of money that was circulating in Israel that day. (laughs) So you cannot miss what Jesus is laying down. This guy is hopelessly in debt. He is completely insolvent. His books are in the red. Innumerable lifetimes (laughs) would not be enough to pay it back. And this guy didn't have that kind of time. There was nothing he could do to pay it back. He could never undo it. And so the king did what was normal, what was usual, what was so every day in those situations. He ordered that the servant and his family and all of his possessions be sold in order to pay down the debt. Of course, knowing that he was only going to get like the teeniest, tiniest little fragment of what he was owed. But for the servant, you know, I don't know what it was, the thought of being sold in slavery, maybe it's his wife, his children, he does what he could do. He falls on his knees. He says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now all the patience in the world, you know, that would have never satisfied that debt. (laughs) And it was ludicrous, ludicrous really to suggest that somehow he'd be able to pay it back. But that's what he asked for. And then the king turns everything upside down. Jesus says that he looked at this guy and literally the word is his heart went out to him. He had compassion on him. He had pity on him. And so he ignores everything that the servant has just said all the ridiculous nonsense about needing time, all of the the foolishness about paying it back, (laughs) there will be no time needed. There will be no patience required because what this king gives him in that moment is complete amnesty, total forgiveness right there on the spot. He forgives the debt, he releases the servant, and he sets that servant free to go, and that guy can skip out of that place a free man with a new life. And church, every time I tell this story, every time I think about this story, I always remind myself that debt, that debt does not just disappear. That debt is still there, and that debt still costs. There is no way for me, church, there is no way for me to overstate how important that is to this story. The debt remains. It's just that the king has taken it back on himself. He steps in. He absorbs this incalculably large debt. He lifts the debt off of the back of his servant, and he puts it on his own back so that his servant can go free. It does not cost the servant anymore ever, not for one minute. He doesn't have to pay because it costs the king. And church, our, our entrance into the life of faith and, you know, to be honest, a lot of our growth in the life of faith hangs on knowing that we are that guy. 
We're definitely that guy. <laughs> the servant with the debt we could never undo. And I mean a lot of our growth hangs on knowing it, and I mean really knowing it with our whole selves. And if we can't face that debt, or we won't face that debt, that death really, <laughs> then we're just going through life whistling in the dark. And of course, you know, of course, when we face that down, when we stare that thing down, of course we make, we make promises um, that we're going to do better and we make promises that we're going to pay it down and we say, tomorrow I will be better. You'll see tomorrow I'll be better. And we parade all the good stuff we do. Of course we say stuff like that. Of course we do. Because it is existentially hard to be that guy. It's intolerable. It's unthinkable to be that guy. So we do all kinds of backflips to feel better about it. But here's the, the eternal good news. The eternal good news at the heart of the story. The king is uninterested in any of that. We can stop all of that stuff because he has in love stepped in so that we can go free. And our debt does not cost us anymore. <laughs> it costs him and in love he is glad to take it from us. And all we do all we do is reach out and cling to him in faith and repentance. Jesus Christ, the righteous, our advocate with the Father, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And that is the truth, church. It's the best thing we're ever going to hear. And you know, in a way, this part of the story answers Peter's question. I mean, in a way, Jesus could probably stop here if all he was interested in is answering Peter's question. God isn't bookkeeping, Peter. He is not bookkeeping, and neither should you. But for Jesus, there is more to be said because he's telling this story for our good. So he paints a portrait of what it looks like to keep on being a, a bookkeeper, even after we have learned that that is not how God is with us. It's not pretty. Jesus says that this same servant walks outside and he runs across another servant. This guy owes him a hundred denarii. And that's, of course, not an insignificant number. That's uh, three or four months' wages. It's a big deal, but it's a speck of a speck of a speck of a speck of what he had just been forgiven. And that's why it's so shocking when he grabs the guy. Jesus starts to choke, or this guy, uh, Jesus says this guy starts to, to choke him. He physically grabs him and chokes him and says, pay what you owe. And the second servant pleads with the first servant. He says exactly what the first servant had said. Have patience with me and I will pay you. But instead of coming to his senses, this first servant throws this other guy into debtor's prison. The fate that he had just been spared. And this is where I have to go back to, to me in the alley with that guy or any of the places where I have withheld forgiveness or any of the places where any of us are withholding forgiveness. I mean, maybe we say the words. A lot of times we do, right? We say the words, I forgive you, but we go on choking these people in all kinds of other ways. We withhold kind words to them. We, we talk about them behind their back. We nurse fantasies of revenge and comeuppance. Or we act like they're not there at all. We're making them pay and, and we can do it for years. 
in years from, from a dad who made it clear why you were coming up that you didn't measure up to his standards and now when he calls, you ignore it. From a friend who once betrayed your confidence and you said you forgave them, but you can't resist bringing it up again, just, you know, like a joke. Listen, none of us get through life, none of us get through life without being wrong. None of us, maybe even by someone who's close to us. We have been hurt and we have had things taken from us and we have been cheated, we have been abused, we have been ignored. The costs of the things that have been done to us are very real. They are true costs. And the wounds that we have experienced at the hands of others, these things go deep into our lives. They have tentacles that go out into all of our other relationships and it affects even how we carry ourselves in life. And some of us can be paralyzed in anger over this or other emotions. Some of us try to cope by pretending that the resentment we hold will somehow make us better. Some of us just don't know how to get free, how to find healing. And so Jesus graciously tells us this story about people who go on being bookkeepers so that we can see, so that we will ask ourselves, who, who's the one who's really in prison, you know? Who's the one who's not free? Who's the one, who is the one who's really paying here? And it's so obvious, church, when we don't forgive, it's us. And we know that this is true. We know it's true deep in our bodies and deep in our bones. It is a truth that the Father has built into the fabric of the world. And so the ending to Jesus' story, you know, as scary and as dark as it is, it makes sense to us because it's this truth that's been built into the world. When the king hears what happens, you know what he does? He lets that first servant go into the life that he has chosen. He's delivered to the jailers, and that's what unforgiveness is. And that cycle of bitterness and revenge and anger, it keeps circling around us and eating us alive. <laughs> and so Jesus graciously tells the story to Peter and to me and to you, to the disciples, for all of us, for one reason, so that we can be people who are free. And that freedom always starts with remembering the truth. Every single time that freedom starts with remembering the truth, as, as Robert Capon puts it, there are no good guys. <laughs> there are no upright, successful types who by the dint of their own integrity have been accepted into the great country club in the sky. There are only failures raised up by a king who died that they might live. <laughs> And church, to follow Jesus in faith is to rest in the work of that gracious king. And I'm telling you, when we do that, when we rest in his work for us, in that grace, even if it means that we're hanging on to him by our fingertips some days, I promise you we will have what we need to be able to begin to forgive. With the help of his spirit, making use, like real use, of all of the means of grace that he has lavished us with, surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, supported by the advice and love and wisdom of this family we call the church, 
we will have everything we need to begin to be people who forgive. No one is saying it's easy. I am not saying it's easy. It isn't all the time. But I want to tell you something else that's true. When a people do this, when, when a people never, ever, ever forgive, give up on forgiveness or the hope of reconciliation, when, when there is a people around who never, ever give up on trying to work out and work towards forgiveness and reconciliation, we howl hymns of wild hope into the darkness. And I'm telling you, they get heard by people in the dark. And those people start making their way back to the source of life. When there is a people who, who refuse to give up, who are always working as hard as it is towards forgiveness and reconciliation, we are throwing life rafts into the deep currents of pain and anger and regret that are flowing swift and fast and rough all around us. People just trying to stay up with their head above water. We throw them a life raft. And I'm telling you, church, people scramble into it. And they make their way home safe. Because when we forgive, we reflect Jesus. And that's the truth. When we for forgive, we offer a taste of this lavish feast of forgiveness and freedom that he offers for the life of the world. So Jesus taught us when you pray, <laughs> say forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let me pray for us. Father, what we would like to be is a people <laughs> who just don't ever forgive, or whoever, uh, who never give up on working to, for, to forgiveness. We would like to be a people who never, uh, ever give up on working towards reconciliation. This is how you have been with us, and so we would like to be that way for the life of the world with your help. And so, Father, help us to rely on your spirit, on all of the good gifts that you give us on one another so that we can be a people who forgive, so that we can be a people who reflect the love of your son to this broken world. And we pray it in his name. Amen.